Hey everybody, welcome to Shallow Dives. Uh, Christian, we are on episode three of Quarantine Movie Club or Quarantine Cast or whatever it is we're calling this thing. Um, and I'm excited, man. I, I feel like this is going well. We're forcing each other to watch some uh, some shit we haven't seen before or shit we haven't seen in a while. Um, so last week, uh, in order, I believe, uh, we started with, what, me, uh, one of mine? So we can start with one of yours. Uh, what, what do you got on deck for us uh, today, Mr. Torres? Well, unless I'm wrong, I think this week I made you watch uh, Stardust Memories uh, mm-hmm. by Woody Allen. And uh, damn, what's that other one that I made you watch? It's been wow, so you really came long. Prepared. No, Blood Simple by the Coen Brothers. I wanted you to rewatch that one. Uh, by the way, totally unrelated. Evil Dead 2 script is like circulating, right? When I'm like, mm-hmm. and I was reading parts of it, and on it, there's a part where he, this guy says, "Like things just got blood simple," and the Coen Brothers kind of helped out on Evil Dead too, like to some capacity, from what I understand. So I think that that's a little interesting that that line doesn't make it in the movie, but is in the script, and then like a year later, their debut comes out and it's got that title. I'm just saying, Raimi litigation. That's all mm. I'm saying. You're saying Raimi should sue. He made it. He wrote it. Or did who wrote that second one? He wrote it with his brother or something. I don't know. Probably we can look that up later. But um, still, Blood Simple, uh, total ripoff. Are we talking about that first? Yeah, man. Let's do it. Let's talk Blood Simple because it's the one people may know. I mean, I picked the film because uh, I'm going to be honest. My relationship with the film is being a huge Coen Brothers fan and never watching it. Uh, just because it wasn't one of the sexy ones. It was like, oh, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, like Raising Arizona. like. And then when we were teenagers, they kind of hit this new peak, uh, sort of, when they adapted No Country for Old Men, where it felt like, holy shit. Like, these guys are always making really singular, like, at times, dark films. But, you know, that really took it up a notch. Uh, when I was, I don't know, a couple years only, 27, I finally watched it. I went to go see it at a place called Syndicated in Brooklyn. Uh, where they were playing the debut and I was fucking floored because it is so competent uh, and also a perfect companion piece in a lot of ways to No Country for Old Men. Like if you want to double feature those, you totally could. Um, and I, and I, in a controversial statement, I find the villain in Blood Simple, I think even more terrifying than uh, Anton Shakur in No Country for Old Men. So yeah, I, mean, I really liked it uh, and, and I wanted a chance to revisit it with sober eyes because uh, we... I don't believe we're talking when I first saw Blood Simple. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's nice to catch up with you. I mean, what's your relationship with the film? I mean, I, I think I saw it on a Netflix DVD. Um, so like back when Netflix had DVDs, because um, like I've just always been about the Coen brothers. I mean, they're across the board aside from, I rewatched Lady Killers recently and that movie is still not good. Um, it has a couple parts, but it's still just a bad movie. Um, but aside from like a couple of misfires, like holy shit, they are some of our best, if not our best, uh, living directors and writers. Um, so yeah, anything that they make, I'm gonna, you know, make a point to see and blood simple, um, very, very, uh, tight sort of controlled methodical film for a debut feature, like really striking film for a debut feature. Um, and super surprising when you learn it's their first film. Uh, but you can also see the seeds of what, you know, uh, came later for sure like you were saying with no country well it's interesting because um i think didn't we find out raising arizona in my mind raising arizona was like the third movie or something i, I don't i don't know why I, I i misplaced it but blood simple like feels kind of unrelenting 
in its mm-hmm. tone. Like, I mean, I, I guess there are a couple moments that are like sort of played for levity, but for the most part, it feels very much like a Coen Brothers drama. Like, if that was your only introduction to them first, you're like, okay, well, I know what these movies are going to be. You know what I mean? But it, it's still amazing that even though you get so much of the dramatic stuff that would carry over, uh, mm-hmm. you don't really get the hint of all the like just ridiculously funny things that they are able to do as well. Yeah, that's something I was going to bring up is like even in No Country, uh, it still has or is populated by some very colorful kind of Coen's characters. And I know that's a, an adaptation of a Cormac McCarthy novel, but it's what they bring to the table in terms of casting and like the very like just like I remember like that lady receptionist at the uh, trailer park or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like, like just the the gall to cast people like that. And it makes it so much more memorable. They hadn't quite gotten there with Blood Simple. They have a couple of people in a couple of scenes that are kind of funny. Like I remember when uh, Francis McDormand's getting kind of shown around in this new loft apartment. And there's like some guy that's still sleeping in there. And like the lady yells at him. Aside from that, though, not a whole lot of humor, not a whole lot of levity. It is, though, very much like in the tradition of their thrillers, uh, something where all the events of it feel inevitable, like kind of like in Fargo, too. Um, But there is this sort of like omniscient sort of dread where everything you're seeing is just like it's lurching towards this horrible kind of conclusion. And there's no change in the track. You know, there's no moving away from it. Uh, I think that's like what all great writing really kind of makes you do is that you, you, you like a car crash, right? You see it all happening in real time and yet you're unable to look away. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and also I think great writing does this thing where there's like plausible deniability for a minute, the minute before you accept that, like, Oh, this is the only way it could end. You are still, I think in a little bit like in that suspended air of being like, how's this going to pan out? Uh, and then as soon as they show you how it's going to, you're like, yeah, but, but of course, like, that's the only way it could have been. That's, and that's a super amazing compliment, by the way. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's predictable. What I'm saying is like great stories, like they're going to tell you how to consume it. And at times, like the best way to view it and understand it and, and to really see their conclusion as the only logical one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, man, it's just, it's a, it's a fucking astonishing debut, man. And like, not again, to talk about M- Emmett Walsh, I believe his name is for a second, which is like, that guy is horrifying in this movie. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have the same kind of like otherworldly feel that like anti Anton Chigurh he, I feel like Anton Chigurh is like 80% of a magical realist character. You know what I'm saying? Like the way that he takes, like he gets shot and, and it hurts him, obviously. Like, you know that he's a man, uh, but he's still able to like just carry on and be unrelenting. Like he's almost a fucking Terminator. Um, Javier Bardem is huge. Uh, the, the scary haircut, like he's a physical imposing person. Well, M.M. Walsh also- isn't. He speaks in like he speaks in riddles and he speaks in like this kind of lofty dialogue about fate and chance and all that. Uh, uh, Emmett Walsh, like he kind of lulls you into a false sense of sort of security at the beginning of the movie. You think he's more of like a kind of a cartoon character. You know, you've seen this sort of sleazy private eye before, you know, <laughs> just kind of wringing his hands, seeing who he could screw over. And then as the film progresses, it's like, oh, this guy is a fucking monster. Great. Um, but no, it, it, and I think that kind of bait and switch makes him more terrifying is because he surprises you. Um, I was going to say, I mean, ask you just off the top of your head when we talk about like our greatest debut films, not that I necessarily am trying to make like a top five list here, but 
when we talk about, I mean, like Tarantino, like for better or for worse, Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino, like in terms of the stylized dialogue and blah, 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 blah. That's more or less who he's always been. You know, like I really like Wes Anderson, but I feel like Wes Anderson that we know and love now didn't really happen in that first movie. Bottle Rocket doesn't have too much of that signature auteur kind of quirk. You know what I'm talking about? Like that kind of gets honed in more in Rushmore, I feel like, and then subsequent films. But in terms of like having a command immediately, um, and, and throughout your entire career, still having that, that shade. Um, you've, you've gone outside of that box. You can color with different colors, sure, but you still have that in your back pocket. That's this constant through line. I don't know if there's a better debut. Um, and you're much more of a film historian than me, so you could probably name a couple. But off the top of my head, I think about the Coen brothers, that, like, and maybe it's the benefit of having not watched it first. Maybe I had a whole career seeing their motifs and then going back and, and realizing, wow, they always had it. Um, but do you, do you, off the top of your head, do you have anything? I mean, it's just random shit that comes to my mind. Like, uh, Robert Eggers, the witch is like an astonishing first film, like, holy shit. And just like what it accomplishes with language, um, or, uh, even Paul Thomas Anderson's heart eight, you know, me, even if it isn't the Paul Thomas Anderson we have now, like that movie can stand on its own as like a singular piece of work that isn't too influenced by other things. There's stuff there like, Altman and you know Sidney Lumet and a bunch of other things but it's still Paul Thomas Anderson as a very young man um but yeah like not to get into other films like for a first film for sure this is like pretty incredible for a third or fourth film it's incredible like it's just a very very great fucking movie um one thing that I know about the production and something that the Coen brothers always have done since this movie and it shows is that they storyboarded the book out of everything like every moment is planned and storyboarded before it's shot and it really does show because there's just such a a tight control of like shots and compositions and all that um especially just the scene where uh the bar owner is kind of crawling half dead out of the car and everything and like on the road and then you see the headlights coming out like every moment of that is just pure nightmare fuel this is almost like a horror movie in parts no i was gonna say feels just like a horror film like it's weird to think that because we talk about the story there's really no horror aspects to speak of mm-hmm. but it plays like a horror film the third act is just a fucking nightmare for 20 minutes you know what i mean like it's it's really hard so yeah um if if i had any beef with this movie and it's just minor beef you know this is like a small side plate of beef it's not you know main course uh it would be that the two leads and I'm including Francis McDormand, very young Francis McDormand, uh, and I forget the guy's name, are not as compelling as they could be on their own. Like the, the, the tension comes from the other characters and the side characters and that the bartender is actually pretty great. I also don't know his name. Um, but the two main characters weren't as uh, compelling as like later Cohen's uh, protagonists. Like you think of like Josh Brolin in No Country for Old Men, like very clearly defined person, funny, you know, uh, complicated character. Uh, here, not as much, but that's okay. Like, the movie has enough to prop it up. A second. Well, it feels like a movie that he made his villain first, or they made their villain first. Like, I think they felt that character. In the same way, like, McCarthy had, uh, Cormac McCarthy has the judge, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I have to imagine that's where that 
story started like this idea of this ambivalent fucking like an uh, omnipotent kind of evil that lurks everywhere that's otherworldly and shit like that and it feels like in a lot of ways i mean it's extreme uh, kind of comparison but that's what uh emma walsh is kind of in this in a mm-hmm. weird way because the judge in, in 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 blood meridian is like very kind at times he shows like a real softness and you're like oh shit and he does some yeah. atrocities <laughs> you know what right. i mean so it's like i think yeah. it, i think they started yeah. with the villain and then yeah. try to think yeah. of the think of the scenario backwards basically you know yeah yeah for sure um but no overall uh, again that's not enough of a detriment for me to say that this isn't still one of their best and i'm including that amongst the ranks of some of my favorite movies uh it's one that i don't return to as much because it's a harder watch than a mm-hmm. lot of their movies um but when you do watch it like it is like just this nightmare that kind of keeps getting worse and it's just like builds on top of itself, but it's so logical, so tight. Um, yeah, I highly recommend Blood Simple. Glad I had an excuse to rewatch it because it had been a few years. Well, there you go, uh, Mr. McCarty. What movie you yeah. want to start with? Well, you know this is tough because I picked two very different films here, and say the least. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you what, we'll end on a happy note. Um, so I'm going to start us off with a little film called Possession. Uh, (laughs) Christian, um, had you, had you heard of this film before I made you watch it? Um, no, no, I hadn't to be completely honest, which is weird because I think like a lot of, I'm sure you've done this, like when we were kids, when we were first falling in love with movies, there was this treasure hunt mentality about finding movies that uh, were weird that you could show your friends that they hadn't heard of. And a lot of times you had to stray out to foreign shit, right? Because the mainstream kind of weird auteur stuff was already mined. Um, so this is a movie that like, now that I've done any research, it's like, oh, it seems to be very like on a lot of people's list of like, hey, you need to see this movie. This is a movie that sort of defi- defies all tropes and logic and like, you know, for better or for worse, you're never going to see a movie like this movie. <laughs> uh, but but I had somehow gone 29 years without seeing it, man. Yeah, um, this is a movie that I had seen Mark Kermode recommend. I'd seen that Lars von Trier, Gaspar Noe, David Lynch, like all these different people that I respect or at least semi-respect uh, call this movie like a fucking touchstone. Like it's a monumental achievement and then i saw oh sam neil's in it like i like that guy you know i fuck with sam neil he's cool um so i ended up seeing it and uh at the end i felt uh emotionally and physically exhausted by a movie in a way that i haven't in a while uh but i couldn't stop fucking thinking about it so like basic basic setup here um it's this andre zulowski film 1981 isabella johnny and sam neil starring uh about a couple getting a divorce and like the first almost what 45 minutes of the movie that's all this movie's fucking about is about a breakup for the first 45 minutes and i'm just like i don't understand what i'm supposed to be loving about this movie because i just want to jump in for one second if i can because Mm -hmm. everything is weird people are not people in this movie they don't speak like people in this movie everyone feels like they're voguing like like no go with me here all right i promise we get we get through a hub we meet a goddess and then i end up really liking this movie but like let's not let's not front like this first 45 minutes is a weird different movie that is playing by some weird rules max 
Uh huh. Well, we'll get to that. Let me just uh, let me just finish describing the basics of the plot here. It's about a couple getting a divorce for the first half. Uh, second half, you realize that the woman um, is having some kind of spiritual affair, possession, uh, symbiotic attachment to this otherworldly creature that causes all sorts of fucking chaos, murder, and mayhem. Um, so it is very much a film divided by a first and second half. And to speak to your point, uh, I showed this to my friend Jackson. This is a story I've told before. Um, and we took a smoke break right in the middle, probably around the point that you were talking about for that first 45 minutes. And he said, I think I hate this movie. And I think these are the worst performances I've ever seen in a movie. Um, but by the end, he was like, I fucking loved it. Um, so sorry, sorry to cut you off there, but, um, first 45, you were not feeling it. I mean, it's not that I'm not feeling it. It's that like everything is so off that I, I like my brain hurts because I'm just like, no, nah, this is all on purpose. Like yeah. there's no reason that Sam Neill's acting like that, <laughs> nor is she acting like that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like the whole time I'm just like, I think everything's wrong on purpose. There's a method to this madness. Dude's trying to make some alchemy, but my brain was working like double time to try to figure out the alchemy necessarily you know so that was my problem um i took a break by the way in this film because the subway scene comes up uh and you know that's just three minutes of screaming and it's nighttime and my wife like you know it doesn't matter how low you have the fucking tv on in the other room like someone's screaming uh so you know that was a thing yeah well when you told me like yeah i watched while dolores was sleeping i was like oh man that that one scene at least i mean it's a movie full of screaming like almost from the beginning i should say that even that first 45 minutes where there's nothing uh, inherently supernatural happening that we can see on screen right. it's it's a very heightened, like everything is dialed up to 10 or 11 emotionally already from the, from the word go. Um, and it's just about the deterioration of this marriage and this relationship. This woman cannot explain why she's fallen out of love with the man and him sort of freaking out about it. Um, go ahead. That's my favorite aspect of it, actually, uh, to be honest. It's just like, hey, they don't know. I, like what I like about it is the movie kind of plays with you for a second. Like, oh, there's a reason. There's right a reason and they don't know and like that's a thing that fucking happens and then later on i looked up it's very much inspired by i guess his divorce uh him and his yeah wife i was gonna bring and, and i think that's very important understanding yeah. this kind of similar to david cronenberg's the fly he was going through a breakup at the time that he made that and it shows and it's also about the aids crisis this is very much about uh post-war berlin and also uh the fracturing of the marriage and well, uh yeah, I was going to say, to speak to that very quickly, it's just like setting immediately. You know, it's yeah. about a divorce, a separation of, of, of like a state, essentially. So, right. like, so I mean, the, the Berlin Wall and almost like every other scene, like it's right. there, it's not fucking subtle. So, but, but this is, this is sort of where it started to click for me because when you start looking at it as like, okay, if, 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 if the director is making a point of view, that's all a film is, right? A point of view mm -hmm. from the director himself. It's like, dude's going through a divorce. He's directing these actors to be a certain way. So suddenly I'm like, okay, like I can, I can get into this. And like, at first I'm just like, this woman is just yelling and like, this is not a good performance. Again, at this halfway point, I'm looking up this movie and it's just like, she won best actress at Cannes. I'm like, what, the, what, why? Like freaking out about it. Cause I don't think it's a good performance. Then we get to the end and I'm like, nah, it's a pretty great performance because what it seems yeah. to me is like the, 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 uh, societal kind of like preconceived notions of what like a woman has to be within society but specifically it's almost like how this dude views women 
You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, and, and, and his over-exaggerated, like, he's hurt, and he's still trying to, like, deal with the process of a literal divorcing of someone else, someone that they built their lives with. So it's like everyone's acting up here. Everyone's so cartoonic and, like, a, a, a caricature because, like, you don't have a control of your emotions anymore. Love right. didn't win the fucking day. Communication broke down, so now we're all flailing around like Mickey Mouse cartoons, you know? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a joke, but it's like, uh, at least for that first 45 minutes, or even really the whole film, if you take it in aggregate, if you're not trying to interpret it in a literal one-to-one corollary kind of way, like what is the creature, this or that, I feel like it very much so is a film that charts the emotional, like, uh, just beats of that person's relationship and divorce. Like, just sort of like the emotional highs and lows of that, and the mania and depression that come with it all put on the screen in a way that only he can really understand. But at least you understand emotionally, like what his headspace was. And like, just, just to, just watching it is, um, I mean, I don't know if I would call it a horror movie. I don't know if I would call it a divorce movie. I would call it a, a lot of things. It, it sort of defies uh, traditional like fucking definition. But I mean, you can definitely, I don't know if after you were done with it, if you could see like its influence on other things like modern Suspiria or, you well, know. Well, Suspiria is the big one, if nothing else, because of the presence of this like looming fucking reminder of bureaucratic failure and stuff, you know, like the Berlin Wall in the background and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Also Antichrist though, especially like. Right. Yeah, I was going to give credit where credit's due. Like, even if I wanted to, like, turn everything off, because dialogue-wise, like, I mean, like, again, if you're going for the ride, it's awesome. Like, Mm -hmm. there is so many... There's a scene with Sam Neill. I just, like, the dialogue kills me where he's talking about, like, I I saw this literally two days ago, and I've already lost some of this dialogue. (laughs) But something about, like, whatever God means to you. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? And he's like, God is a disease. (laughs) God is a disease. And he's like, well, it's a disease you must carry. Yeah, there's a lot of lofty... Hold on. And only through God, or only through disease do we get to God. Like, it's a a Ouroboros, man. Like, the lyrics are people just talking in fucking circles. I'm sorry, continue. And and what I do love about the filmmaking too is that like the filmmaking matches the the mania of the dialogue. The camera is constantly fucking moving, and there's a re- use of reflections and you know physical and emotional violence and just that that subway scene. Holy right. shit! And, well, and that's like, the point. Like it's the most visceral fucking thing I've seen. Like it, it is yeah. gritty. The color palette is like like completely. All right, you know when they take all the fucking colors out of these DC movies for the most part, and you're like, why? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's a way to be fucking astonishingly beautiful in your compositions and still mute the colors. And like sure. they did it in '81. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No. Um. Uh, the actors like if you if you take any scene from this movie and just put it on its own, it'll look like bad acting. But I feel like the actors both were just going for it 110 percent like it's just full commitment like to the nth degree like and i respect that i kind of i kind of love it um i like that we can't even really talk about plot with this film because holy shit this back half of the movie just because like we have not really touched on much of the like batshit crazier moments of this movie right my god well something that needs to be experienced go ahead sorry when when zelowski was going to get funding for this thing he pitched it with literally one sentence he said it's about a woman who fucks an octopus so (laughs) 
There you go. If, they, if that tells you anything about the back half, and it's also a movie about divorce, like it's got a lot going on, especially in that back half. And I've seen interpretations like, oh, it's about the birth of God, or it's about the devil, or it's about the Antichrist, and there's all this different religious symbology. I don't think that that really matters. You can go nuts with that shit and maybe even have fun with it. Uh, but my main takeaway is just like the emotional sort of journey. Like there are doppelgangers and this and that. Um, it's just more of like a fucking ride that you either have to get on or not. Yeah, I would say this. It is the most singular fucking thing I've seen in a minute. Uh, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen, I've never, I was never watching it like, oh, they're going to do the old uh, so and so, the old, you know, the old Timmy's in a well, the old, yeah. you know, like whatever you trope. Definitely that I can't. Can think of. <laughs> It is a movie completely bereft of tropes. There's no tropes to be found in possession. Uh, yeah. for better uh, you know, by, by the way, I took it more as this whole idea of possession in, in, in a moment of separation. Like, I think, mm. it's, I think it's literal. I think it's like Sam Neill is like a possessive piece of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it's easy to be like, there's some supernatural element to it. There kind of is, obviously. Mm. But I, I think like, hey, man, words got multiple meanings. So like, let's, <laughs> let's use our heads here. Overall, I mean, it was, it was, I ended up walking away from it like, holy shit. I'm glad yeah. that was made. <laughs> like, right. Like it's uh, a movie that when you see it, you'll never forget it unless, you know, you get Alzheimer's or something, but no, like it's something that will stay with you uh, for the rest of your life. Unless you've seen some insane shit that, you know, I, I don't even know. What to tell you. It feels like a fucking Polish English language giallo. Like it feels mm -hmm. like this really weird, almost pulpy. Like I guess giallos are more fun. I guess like they're a little bit more yeah. the suspense rather than horror, but it still feels like that. It was just a uh, really, really fucking, I don't know. I liked it. That's all I can say. It's weird as fuck. Go watch it. It'll be weird. Uh, don't watch it at night while your wife is sleeping. <laughs> Good advice or watch it with your wife. Probably. It's not a fun date night movie. Um, you want to move on? I'm going to do a little, I'm going to do a little Stardust. A little Stardust Star, Stardust Memories. Well, sure. let's talk about this. I mean, again, if I could just set this up for me, it's like Stardust Memories. I was a big Woody Allen guy. These days, I feel very conflicted about Woody Allen. -dom. Uh, but uh, Stardust Memories is this really specific point in this guy's career because he was sort of beloved early on for the comedies. And then when he switched over to doing dramas, they were still like dramedies. I mean, Annie Hall, Manhattan, those are, those are still funny. Uh, but at some point, right after that he's like fuck it man i'm done with this game i want to tell my own stories i want to stretch my artistic legs and the first film out of that new era is stardust memories uh max you had never seen this man what was your takeaway uh i mean i i, I think that kind of like you know we talked about pedro almodovar's um pain and glory that it's uh, something that you would probably appreciate more if you had seen more of his earlier stuff because this is very much and i know alan says it's not autobiographical it clearly fucking is like yeah. there, i don't know what other takeaway there is to be had with it uh but my main takeaway um not really knowing much about where alan was at this point in his career is that it definitely was autobiographical definitely showed me where he was kind of emotionally and mentally as an artist it definitely seemed like a film about an artist sort of grappling with his own early legacy and like where he wanted to go. Um, and it also like kind of showed me Alan is the filmmaker for the first time. And I've seen like good filmmaking from him, but usually he feels very uh, economical and sort of like uh, perf not perfunctory, but like filmmaking was never usually like the main attraction with Woody Allen. It was usually the writing uh, with this. It's definitely like him playing with a lot of different things like 
uh, just like the sort of POV shots of different people crowding him and the space alien shit. And like, there's just like a lot of goofy shit going on here where he's being very uh, playful with the framing and the filmmaking. Yeah, I've always described it as like, and I think he puts it on front street too. It's like his love letter to eight and a half. In a lot of ways, it's his eight and a half. I think the opening scene is like an astonishing fucking scene, especially if you don't know what it is. Like I, when I when I first got into my Woody Allen love, it's not like Wikipedia didn't exist, but there weren't these detailed critical fucking analysis of all the things that told you the plot and stuff. So I'm like, oh man, Stardust Memories, here we go. Another comedy. Uh, and starts off with like this really harrowing scene where Woody Allen is on a train uh, and he and he looks over to this platform. He sees another train, and it seems like people are having a good time. But on his train, he hears like a ticking clock, and a woman's crying, and like you know, like the, all these ambient things, and it, it builds up, and you kind of realize they say it without saying it that like he's on a train going to a not good place for Jews. This, this is what I got out of it. And he looks over, and there's this decadent fucking party, and everyone's laughing, and society's all good with it. And the, I, I remember I was like 16, and I was stoned. Sorry, mom. Uh, like, and I was like, holy shit. Like, that really got me. I don't know why. That opening scene really set the tone. And then the rest of the movie is not really emblematic of that opening scene but again just from a moment where he's like okay i'm gonna show you that i could be a filmmaker i think it's incredibly effective yeah a lot of critics didn't like this thing um looking back do you think its legacy has kind of improved a little bit yeah, in memory no, because I, like i was reading initial reviews and a lot of people were like not about it roger ebert gave it two out of four stars etc um yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's a big criti cri uh, critical reevaluation happening with it in the last couple of years, for sure. Like a lot of people uh, who have, and even people who had written reviews in the time have come back and said, like, I was a hack critic, I'm sorry, which is like a big thing for critics to do. Uh, because like the thing is, it is inherently silly. Like it, it's a film that on the surface betrays itself. He wants to be taken serious. He wants to write this like actual craft, like an actual adult oriented story and stuff, but then fucking aliens show up. So like, there's this idea like in their plate and the aliens are like, we like your early work. You know what I mean? So like there is this right. playful, almost absurd nature to it that seemingly undercuts it. But at the same time is just like, you want me to do fucking silly stuff? Okay, like, we're going to push this up. I'll still do silly stuff, but I'm going to do it in a way that is satisfying to me, and I don't really care about satiating anyone else's version of me anymore. I just want to write the stories I want to write. That's how I felt about it, because it's like, the aliens, they, I mean, that's like the line in the sand for critics, apparently, is those fucking aliens showing up, uh, which is so interesting to me, because, like, the movie is on a course well, well before they show up, but I don't know. In the reviews I read, it was never usually like the aliens that took that they took issue with. It was more the comparisons to Eight and a Half, and that he was like too early in his career to be doing like a retrospective like this or something like that. Which I know I he. Would, I, I would disagree with that in a way. If you look at his filmography, and I think maybe you said you're right, like you're a little bit more unfamiliar with it. But at this point, yeah. he, this was his third reinvention. You know what I mean? This was this was uh, Bowie becoming the Goblin King after he was already Ziggy Stardust and fucking the Thin White Duke and all that other shit. You know, so it's like. I, got, I just think he had a lot of... It's like when the Beatles wrote all those fucking songs in seven years. It's like, yeah, they were 30, you know? <laughs> like, they were, are they not allowed to ponder and look back at what the Beatles were? Like, I don't... Yeah, I think they could earn it is all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Uh, like, it, it did really kind of strike you as like... A, or strike me as... Um, I mean, it's very explicitly about this artist sort of having these expectations thrust upon him 
and getting completely fed up with it on the verge of a nervous breakdown almost at all times, uh, which definitely plays into the whole like, because I'm unfamiliar with early Woody Allen. I've mostly seen just like later age Woody Allen where he's more behind the camera, but it definitely plays into that kind of nebbish, nervous uh, Woody Allen cartoon stereotype. that What seen. have you like, seen by it. him? Uh, see Match Point. Um, Not in it, but okay. Fear, uh, not fear and loathing. What is it? Sweet and low down. Zelig. Um, Zelig's great. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've seen like random shit. Uh, I was wondering how many you've seen that he's actually been in because you're right. A lot of the later stuff he hasn't. I don't think I've actually seen anything that he's been in. I could so be you haven't seen Manhattan or Annie Hall or any of that stuff. Hannah mm-hmm. and her sisters. No. Okay. Cool. All right. So what we need to do is little by little educate you. But uh, I think it's maybe the worst possible Woody Allen film I could have made you watch now that I realize you have not seen a single Woody Allen film. But yeah, I mean, I I would say the eight and a half thing, obviously, when you put yourself up against a director like Fellini, like it's an unflattering comparison. You should never do that. At the same time, I think we look at other people that we really respect. Paul Schrader. I mean, he's straight up taken movies from like the French new wave, like stolen entire endings and thrown it on there. Um, And I think you're allowed to do that as an artist. Everyone is paying homage, everyone's stealing, but if you can do it and frame it in a different way, you're fine. And there's no part of me that thinks that Stardust Memories is like eight and a half outside of having the same feeling. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like they're totally distinct films made by two distinct artists. Yeah, I mean, but they're they're still both about like two artists who are reckoning with their legacy in kind of like a meta sort of way. So I can see the comparison as far as that goes. And it's also like shot in the black and white, which looked great, by the way. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's a, it's a great looking film, but definitely something that I think would be more uh, of a rich experience if I was more familiar with uh, Woody Allen's other shit. And like, to be honest, I haven't exactly been, you know, uh super motivated to get into woody allen just based on the latest you know shit going on with him which gets down into that sort of uh debate about art versus the artist and should you separate the two it's much harder to separate the two when the artist is also on screen um but like i I didn't really think about that while i was watching this so i'm I'm down to go down the, the old woody allen rabbit hole yeah, well, I picked another super minor work for our next list, so you'll have that to look forward to. But yeah, I'm, I mean, glad I got you somewhat introduced. I, I do feel bad now because I just didn't know you didn't see anything. So maybe we'll go back eventually and rewatch this uh, like five years from now when you've seen okay. all 40 Woody Allen films we'll in do, order. Do a second review. I mean, again, I, I enjoyed the experience, but, you know, like you said, um definitely something that i'd want to return to later sir uh weirder movie than possession your last film uh that we're watching (laughs) that we're going to talk about today why don't you introduce it uh yeah so i picked a little movie called babe pig in the city uh george miller's sequel to the beloved uh what was it 1995 film babe kind of took the box office by storm got nominated for best picture just completely blew everybody away. Um, it defied all expectations. George Miller comes out and uh, takes up the director's seat because he had co-written the first one. Co-writes this one, decides to direct it as well. A sequel that is completely, uh, much like Possession, bereft of the usual sequelitis tropes. 
that uh, sort of happen with children's films, especially. Um, totally new setting to put his character in, and it was kind of universally disliked by audiences at the time. It's something I remember seeing as a kid and not liking because it was so dark and strange and heady and kind of scary. Yeah, um, and Ferdinand. That's that's where I start and end. Ferdinand, man. This fucking, what is he, a goose or a duck or some shit? You know what I'm talking about? Duck, yeah. Fuck that duck. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just, I was thinking about him the whole time. Just like, he's sassy. Aww. He thinks he's so big in the britches, but he's not. He's not even wearing britches. Well... I like him, so I'm sorry that you had that. that no, like the movie's uh, but, but, weird. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, just just uh, to to get into it. Um, I decided to rewatch this movie on HBO, uh, just kind of at random because it's George fucking Miller, and like he gave us Fury Road, and I feel like if anybody's career deserves a little bit of a a, a rewatch or review, um, a reevaluation, it's him. So I gave it a shot and I fucking kind of loved it. Um, I don't know how you felt about it, but I saw so much in this thing that I did not see as a kid because there was like, I was lacking in those touchstones. I didn't know what he was like going for. Right. Um, but it felt like Fury Road in miniature to me in some parts. I don't know how you felt about it though. I'm talking uh, about what it did was make me get really shitty about George Miller not being given the uh, Justice League job. And that sounds weird because you think I would have felt that after Fury Road, but it's like, no, I feel that more because like some of the kinetic, like fucking energy and just the way that some of these ideas are articulated and executed on screen are like awesome. Like awesome to the point where you're like, he'd made pigs and animals running through this city. Interesting. Like, and like visually arresting and stimulating and high stakes and shit Mm -hmm. where I'm just like, I don't know. This is like high speed shit. Like there are moments in babe uh, pig in the city that are more exciting than that fucking Westworld chase we just watched. And I mean, way more exciting. Like it's not even a competition. So from that level, I was really into it. I would also say that like, maybe as a kid I'm, I'm very similar with you which is like i didn't really get any of the bits when there's bits throughout that whole movie like there's mm-hmm. bits kind of like within every scene multiple bits yeah. sometimes uh and so it just makes it this really like if you once you get past the first like 15 minutes of being like this is a weird fever dream because mm-hmm. that's how i feel anytime I, I see any talking animal thing i'm just like this right. is fucking i'm assuming nightmare. you're also kind of blazed right well, of course like what are we doing here <laughs> But yeah, I'm not the um, weird one here. You made me watch a movie about a talking pig. I figured, like, I guess I'm leaning into this. And I, I hung back and burned one down, as they said. But, mm-hmm. no, after that, like, honestly, after you get past, like, kind of the first first 15 minutes of it. And the first 15 minutes are, like, lovely, by the way. There's nothing wrong with the first 15 minutes. It's just me and my own bullshit. Um, it, re- it really kind of <laughs> – you start to, like, that fucking pig. That's all I could say to the point where I'm like, all right, I'm on this fucking journey, man. And yeah. and and uh, go ahead. I'm sorry because you're so enthused. You recommended this, so I just want you to know that I'm on board with it in a way that I was not expecting to be on board. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is. You you say I like to quote the soft bigotry of low expectations all the time, but that's yeah. accurate because I'm just like I love George Miller. I don't care about a fucking pig movie, and that's the attitude I had literally putting this on and was like, oh, I I kind of. <sighs> I don't want to overstate things too much. And I know you're probably going to say I'm overstating it, but like, I think for what it is, it's kind of a fucking masterpiece. Cause I rewatched it after this initial rewatch and just wall to wall visual gags. Like the set design is fucking incredible. 
they like design this crazy, beautiful sort of uh, hotel. And they're in this city that's sort of a combination of all cities. It's got like Hollywood landmarks in New York and uh, Paris and Venetian canals. Um, And yeah, just like beyond the slapstick and the visual gags and like the talking animals, which still hold up in terms of like technology. CGI animatronics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a combination of like CGI animatronics and real, you know, animals, Um, the chase scenes, the action, whatever, the fucking dialogue in this movie, like is just so heady and good. And like uh, the characters, like just the chimpanzees. uh, They they they, kind of win the show here, but yeah, go on. Just so each of them so distinct as characters. And there's this orangutan uh, named Thelonious. That's just like this sort of, I don't even know, man. Like he's one of the most memorable characters I've seen in a movie in a minute. And he's a fucking orangutan. Um, but but yeah, like uh, Miller fucking got me with this. And, and I think it is like sort of a sneaky movie in that you don't expect much from it. But then you watch it and it's dealing with things like death and communism and fucking uh, betrayal and all these other things. Like it's, it's got a lot going on. Also, we can start a, a running count of how many times I mentioned Campbell, and I'm sorry to do so, but but it really is like a perfect overlay of that as well. Uh, like, I think that's what's interesting about it is on a story level, hmm. it kind of hits every beat, and it's already a, a protagonist that was established in a previous film. So it's like you know sometimes you take that for granted. Usually in sequels, you don't you're not giving that person as much of a fucking arc and stuff like that. But right. I, like, there's a scene where he's being chased by those fucking dogs. Yeah, I think it's the scene you sent me. Actually, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest about it, where it just starts cutting like between what he was remember he was reminded of the the moments that brought him here. I don't know. It was like just this fucking nut, right. nuts moment where I was like, wow. the, all the moments that brought him to this, the yeah. moment of his annihilation, and Jesus it's like man. doing these quick cuts to like his birth and suckling at his mother's teat and the farmer falling down the well and the <laughs> dog chasing after, and it's like, oh my god, this is fucking dark. Like, there, there are parts of this that are like fucking metal i don't know yeah. Yeah. no man it really it, it's a it's a solid film it, it really is and i think that's the reason is that on a story perspective it's so weird mm-hmm. you know kind of broadly weird but it but it isn't weird in terms of like the story that it's telling or executing it's this is like really lovely fucking story and like people come through and and people change and friendship and like because I, I was stoned but like when Pate, when babe saves the dog i, I almost cried like right. i was like oh friendship he was gonna eat you so I got right excited. and it's it's a voice we should say by eg daily the person who did tommy pickles um oh i didn't know that, that. Same tommy pickles charm that's interesting yeah yeah it's it's great it's great great voice cast um mainly populated by animals i can't imagine the logistics of wrangling all these animals and shooting this film must have been like a fucking nightmare but they they made it happen like seriously like just thinking about like that chase scene alone is kind of crazy um but yeah man i'm glad you enjoyed it i'm glad you you got on board with that i'm glad you got on board with possession um again uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One was harder than the other. I want to point out that Babe Pick in the City, there was an eight-year absence before George Miller made another movie. So I, I agree. It must have been terrible, you know, to make oh, that movie. Yeah. Well, also, like, people kind of tore it to shreds when it came out. Like, like some Oh, they put him in movie jail is what you're saying. A little bit. I mean, Roger Ebert gave it four stars. He said he loved it more than the first because the first one was like a warm hug. And in this one, they take the beloved farm character, farmer character, they throw him down a well. 
they have the beloved uh, farmer's wife character. They get her arrested by airport security on suspicion of drug possession. Um, they dump glue on her. Like, babe gets lost. A dog is hanging by a fucking collar off of a bridge and almost drowns. Like, it, there, there's a lot of... The dog with the little wheels that gets tossed off at the truck. That fucking shattered me, man. I gotta be honest, because they zoomed in on the fucking wheel, and the wheel just stopped spinning. And I'm right. like, oh, my God. And I thought that's where it cuts, and then it cuts right back to, like, hey. Well, hey. <laughs> it was great because it does go, show him in, like, doggy heaven, and he's, like, jumping around. He's yeah. like, catch 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 he's like trying to catch some butterflies and they like wake him up um but yeah like what when you told me last episode with the hunt like why do you make me watch this movie with the dog i was like oh man he's gonna fuck you up bubby um but luckily no dogs actually die everybody lives it all works out fugly flume does not make it though mickey Rooney's character i love that that's his name by the way fugly flume great a befitting title for a legend um <laughs> no man honestly it was it was like it's awesome it's a movie that, like if i have kids and, 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 and the truth is you not even really for kids like babe one's for kids babe yeah. two is for kids with an edge like babe kids <laughs> who realize what death is you know what i mean like so uh, i don't know it's something i would love to, like i have nephews i'm gonna show them this movie like i really liked it so yeah yeah uh, well, and it also well, again well. makes me mad that george miller doesn't do everything because he made pigs super fucking cool you know yeah, but like you see all those things from Mad Max in this thing. It makes me want to watch Happy Feet now. Like I've never seen that shit, and I hear it's actually good. Happy so. Feet one's awesome. Yeah, I yeah, like uh, making me making me regret not seeing all of his shit, which we should probably do at some point. Um, but yeah, uh, good good overall episode, man. We we liked all the shit again. Like we have not had an episode yet where we didn't like one of the movies we? well we'll see i picked some interesting movies for the next six like i think I, i'm hoping we stumble onto a fucking disagreement at some point but so far we keep we keep picking movies that are either already like personally or like we've watched personally and we like and we have an emotional connection to or we we've heard are good so we're like we're, we're we're picking things that we hope the other person likes we're not trying to sabotage anyone you know what i mean but right. we'll get there, man. You know, fucking Billy Jack is a movie, I guess. It so. <laughs> technically is. <laughs> All right, man. So, uh, we, well, that, that, was a, that was a solid episode. You did it. We made it through another, another week of this uh, quarantine movie club, man. Yeah. Uh, join us next time. We got a whole new list of new six films to watch. Uh, Christian, do you want to lay out your next six and I'll lay out mine? Um, uh, I'll lay out mine while you get yeah. your list ready. Um, so my next six, I picked Safe with Julianne Moore, the Todd Haynes film, uh, F for Fake by Orson Welles, The Nightingale by Jennifer Kent, uh, Playtime by Jacques Tati, uh, Tampopo by uh, someone Japanese whose name is failing me now. I think it's Juzo Itami and Polytechnique by Denny Villeneuve. So pretty excited for you to see all those films. Um, I think you'll like all of them, but I could be wrong. There might be something in there. Hey, we'll see. Yeah. And I, I, I want you to know, by the way, that I made an effort with this list to pair whatever was fucked up and dark with something light and breezy and fun. So I'm really, I'm really trying not to depress you, Bubby. Uh, I can appreciate that. Here's my problem. I literally don't know where my list is, uh, but we can piece it together. I'm sure, right? Like I, I, know, I, I know a couple wrote it of down, them. I believe. Oh, you got it. Nice. Yeah, you. Tell yeah. Me. Because I because I switched um, out some. I got three off the top of my head. But what do you? What, what so you 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 uh, got band apart. 
Um, Radio Days, Che, Divorce Italian Style, Daisy, and Billy Jack. Yeah. Those are good. Maybe. (laughs) We'll see. All right, let's put it on Front Street now. Which which two are you making me watch? And And I'll tell you. I am making you watch Safe and F for Fake. Mm, okay, so Todd Haynes and Orson Welles. Interesting. Yeah. I'm making you watch uh, Che by Steven Soderbergh and Billy Jack by uh, Tom Laughlin, uh, mm-hmm. which is a fucking fever dream that somehow got made. The 70s are awesome, but uh, we'll talk about it next week, man. Uh, good episode, Max. You did good. Yeah, you too, man. Catch you later, nerds.